Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. This is going to be an incredible episode, an instant classic, I dare say, because I'm talking with none other than Eric Von Daniken, the man behind Ancient Aliens. His seminal work, The Chariots of the Gods, uh, which was published, extraordinarily influential work published in the 60s, which basically put forth, postulated this idea that early ancient civilizations, early humans were contacted by extraterrestrial life, which helped basically form their culture. And I will argue that was the genesis, uh, no pun intended, for all religions and a lot of the ongoing reoccurring themes that exist amongst all the religions, because there are lots of overlap. And, and I think that they're all interpretations of some of these uh, initial contacts, if you believe this whole thing. And I don't know that I do. Um, but if you believe, I think that there's lots of really interesting science, lots of interesting stories. And we're just going to get right into this uh, because no one can explain this better. No one has studied it more and, and no one has the um, the reputation behind all this than Eric Von Daniken. So, Mr. Von Daniken, thank you so much for being on the show today. And I will say, for such a controversial topic, it is a great thing that you are residing in the most neutral place on the planet, Switzerland, correct? Yes, I am. I am living here, and I am Swiss since generations. <laughs> is that right? Yes. Oh, wow. So the Danikin family goes way back in, in, in Swiss lineage. You could pull up old history books, and your ancestors would be in there. Yes, that's correct. Were they into the same kind of stuff, or were they totally different? <laughs> I don't know. You know, in the past... I mean, in the past 300 years ago, the Van Denikens came Van Deniken. You know, von is German, means coming from. And in Switzerland, there is a village with the name Deniken. And there is von Deniken. We came from this village, Deniken. Some 300 years ago, my four forefathers were some uh, you know, knights. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So you have like noble blood. You come from a noble background. No, 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 not noble blood. Just just uh, noble just the persons. <laughs> Right. You're like noble adjacent in a way. Yeah, in a way, yes. Yes, right. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. I don't think I realized that. Um, you've got a pretty cool history yourself. Besides being the master of um, ancient history, uh, you've got kind of a, an interesting um, pedigree yourself. I got to tell you, Mr. Von Daniken, can I call you EVD? Yes, yes, no problem. They call me in German language like this, EVD. EVD, I like that. So, EVD, I got to tell you, this is, you know, I'm, I'm an open-minded skeptic. So, I like looking at kind of new and interesting ideas. And I got to tell you, you, you this, this whole idea of what you put together is really intriguing. I will be honest, I'm not sure how much that I believe as faith, um, but I, I love the idea. And, and I think we're, we're going to get into some really cool stuff, hopefully some new stuff, because um, I think you've got a lot of knowledge, and you've talked about a lot of this stuff before, but let's see if we can get into some new stuff, including, which I think I've always wanted to know, is where did this kind of, I don't want to say, if I say obsession, uh, I don't mean that in a bad way, but where did this come from? I mean, were you uh, into, into UFOs when you were a kid, or were you abducted no, no, by no, aliens? No, no. What happened? No, 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 no. I was educated as a strict Catholic and uh, I was for six years in a Catholic boarding school led by Jesuits. And of course, I was a deep believer in God. I still am a deep believer in God. But when I was a boy, God had, had to be for me something inexplainable. God does not need a vehicle in which to move around from point A to point B because God is all over. Of course, God makes no mistake, etc. Now in that high school, we have to make translations from parts of the Bible, from Greek to Latin and Latin to German. And I realized that the God in the Bible does use a vehicle in which to move around. He, he comes down with, on Moses, for example, with smoke and fire and trembling and loud noise and so on. So I simply had doubts in my own Catholic education. I wanted to know if other communities in antiquity have similar stories than we Christians and the Jewish community has. So I started to read 
the, the beginning of the other cultures, of the religions. And that was the beginning of Chariots of the Gods. Well, so, so you didn't have, like, as a child, you weren't into UFOs or into anything like that? No, not at all. Really? Until today. In the meantime, I'm uh, 83 years old. I have never seen a UFO. <laughs> no kidding. Well, hold on, hold on. That's actually mind-boggling to me. You've never seen a UFO? No. Wow. Never. I got to tell you, I'm, like as I mentioned, I'm an open-minded skeptic. I've seen some pretty strange things in the skies. I don't know if I would call them UFOs. I guess by definition, it was an unidentified flying object, but it just meant that I couldn't identify it. It didn't mean that it wasn't unidentifiable. Um, but that surprises me. I, I'm, I'm shocked at that. Well, no, why? I mean, there are many things in the sky, skies which you can see. I guess And so. we are calling the UFOs, well, you know, unidentified flying object. This could be, as you just said, Many, many things which are not explainable. It doesn't have to be necessarily something to do with extraterrestrials. You know, you know what? Here's why I think it's, it strikes me as strange. Because, you know, I mean, this is your life's work. You're, you're, you know, for lots of different reasons, you're known as the guy who kind of championed paleo contact, this whole belief um, that aliens, other pe- beings from other planets came down and kind of inspired the cultures, religions, and beliefs of, of our ancient, ancient ancestors. And so I think when people really have that kind of focus um, in their life, it usually stems from some kind of event or something. You know, it, it, pick anyone who's, who's kind of gone into a topic, even, you know, as you mentioned, religions, priests and everything. I mean, they had some kind of, maybe they saw God, maybe they saw a miracle or something they believed. Something inspired them to take them on this path. Um, and, and UFOs are such a fundamental part. I just, I guess, I just imagined that that would be at some point um, part of what made you do what you do. You see, I have many uh, speeches worldwide and on my speeches, I show incredible, well, indications to support my case. And after each speech, I always end with the words, ladies and gentlemen, do not believe the story. It has nothing to do with believing. I turn myself in my tomb. If some people come up and make out a kind of religious sect out of my way of thinking, it has nothing to do with believing. It's just information. I give information. We see some of the old writings with new eyes we some of we see some of the sculptures of the temples of the buildings with new eyes but this hasn't to be the one response there might be other solutions for all these mysteries hmm. no i i mean I, I i love that mindset i mean i think that that's really i mean that's really kind of how you have to take all this and that's kind of what i'm doing is i'm taking it as information and here's i'll tell you something now, now you don't know the people i'm going to talk about in the story but um, I have a pretty stiff, uh, my, one of my previous bosses was a pretty stiff guy, you know, very kind of a straight and narrow. And when um, I I'd read your book a couple of years ago, I'd, I was hoping to, to um, get maybe just a couple minutes with you at a contact in the desert here in Los Angeles about two years ago. So I read your book in preparation. That's the kind of my commitment to excellence, by the way. Uh, and, and so, so I, I read the book and I remember mentioning it to him and even he knew what chariots of the gods were. He knew who you were. Um, and you, that may not be impressive to you, but I was like, wow, the kind of what you've done is permeated into the pop culture. You're even mentioned in the movie, the thing. I don't know if you knew that. Yes. And well, there are several movies and TV series, which uh, have to do something with me, uh, definitely. Uh, and, and the, the editors, they told me at the phone, we were inspired by your books. And I'm very happy to hear this. <laughs> you know, since about eight years in the United States, you have this history channel. And they, some eight years ago, they wanted to make an interview with me. And then they showed the interview and they had a very high uh, frequency, you know, hundred thousands of, of uh, listeners. So it, uh, in the meantime, they have a continuation of 150 parts. It's a never-ending story. It's like some years ago, the X-Files. In the, in the moment, it's ancient aliens. 150 continuation. It all has to do with my ideas. All through, I do not agree with all the things which they say in there. I am only responsible for what I say myself. Right. <laughs> I like that disclaimer. You should only be responsible for the things you say yourself. Uh, so that shows great. Ancient Aliens, I want to talk about that in a second because um, actually my good friend, friend of the show, um, one of my collaborators, Michael Denon, helped me get the interview with you. He's good friends with Giorgio. He's the uh, scientific, kind of the scientific skeptic on Ancient Aliens. And as you mentioned, it's got 150 episodes. It's been on, I think, ten year, almost 10 years. Uh, so there's obviously a fascination with this idea. Your book's going on 50 years. 
Uh, I mean, it's just incredible that it still has this kind of attention. So there, there's something to this, uh, you know, even even in a, from a cultural standpoint, there's something about this idea that people really like and are attached to. You know, we all are educated in, in one or the other religion, be it we are Christians or Jewish or, or Muslim religion. It doesn't matter. We all hear the stories which are thousands and thousands of years ago, dealing with Moses, dealing with Abraham, dealing with all these so-called prophets. And now someone comes, like Eric von Däniken, and makes a suggestion, well, why don't we change the word angel into extraterrestrial? According to biblical references, there was a war in heaven. One day, an archangel with the name of Lucifer came to the Almighty God, and he said, we do not serve you anymore. So and then it was a war in heaven. But in real heaven, heaven should be the place of absolute happiness. After that, heaven, you are united with God. So in real heaven, a war, a war is impossible. So we should change the word heaven into space. So we change the word angel into extraterrestrial. We change the word heaven into space. In the old books, different people, like Abraham or, or uh, Enoch, were taken into heaven. But they were just instructed there. They were teach there, and they brought them back to earth. So they were not in heaven. They were, as I suggested, in a mother spaceship. And they learned something there. So we have different of these references, which, you know, all these old texts were translated 100, 200 years ago by brilliant professors. But in their time, something like space travel, spaceships, was not thinkable. In the meantime, we know it is sinkable. UFOs in our days are looked mostly by, by normal persons, scientists, journalists, as something unreal, something uh, untrue, something, you know, unreasonable. Now, slowly it changes that the unreasonable is maybe reasonable. So we change the spirit of time with our books, and with our way of thinking, but never in the way of a religion. It's not the question, believe it or not, it's just a question. Look at it with other eyes. Maybe you come to a similar conclusion. Well, I will tell you, um, before we get too deep into this, I will tell you that the thing that I take away, and I'm gonna, I'll mention this again, uh, I really think that your book is more about the genesis of religions in a way, because I think that's the most that was the most lasting element of it to me. This whole idea that there are several cultures around the world who all have creation myths that can all be kind of explained with this idea of paleo contact. Um, that's really what, what, what's, what, what kind of struck me is it's, it just really kind of in a very unique, interesting way explains why all these things are similar, um, you know, why all these religions are, 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 have a very similar belief. And if you just, as you just mentioned, if you just swap out a couple of words, uh, it, it's pretty intriguing that it, that it could be, you know, visitors from outer space. And, you know, and by looking at it, it with my eyes, you do not lose your God. Let's, let's imagine that uh, my position would be correct. So we were visited by beings from uh, outside. The next question is, where did they come from? What evolution do they have? Right. Now you can continue and say they were visited by other extraterrestrials too. Okay, and where did the other extraterrestrials come from? Right. You can continue <laughs> this for billions of years. Finally, sure. you arrive in a starting point. Yeah. where in every respect with religion, you say, here is creation, here is God. You never lose God when you deal with extraterrestrials. No, I agree. I mean, there was this great Simpsons episode where uh, Lisa Simpson, um, for it's a Treehouse of Terror episode, but for a science fair project, she takes a tooth and it gets an electric shock, and basically she creates like a, a new race of very, very small people in this little Petri dish. And and what I love about the episode is, you know, it, it goes through the evolution of man, essentially. And so it starts out in tribes, and then they get together. And then she, you know, one of the funny lines is it is she creates Lutherans as one of them, like, bangs a note on the Catholic Church in this small little Petri dish. And, you know, but it, I, in some ways, I think that that episode was inspired by what you're talking about, because she was kind of the extraterrestrial, so to speak, who seeded this Petri dish. And yet, as you mentioned, she could be someone who was seeded by someone else or whatever. You know, the chain goes on and on. Um, you don't lose the origin. It's just a couple steps removed from the place that you think it is. You know, uh, some 70 years ago, there was a brilliant scientist, a Swedish Nobel Prize winner. His name was Savante Arrhenius. He's dead since 70 years. And he came up with the idea which he published under the name Panspermia, 
what is panspermia? He said, somewhere in the universe, the first intelligent form of life started. Now we have the skeptics say, how did it start? Well, in religion, they say, in the beginning it was God, but then you have to ask, what created God? In science, we learn now in the beginning was the Big Bang, then you have to ask what created the Big Bang. So in, in either way, be it religious or scientific, in the beginning we have a big zero. We don't know what the beginning was. Now this um, Swedish Nobel Prize winner, Savanti Arrhenius, suggested there was a start somehow. And this first civilization in the universe had the wish to spread out themselves, their own way of life in some part of their Milky Way. So they did not send spaceships out. They simply infiltrated part of their Milky Way with billions of billions of, uh, well, let's, let's say in our word, DNA. You know, the DNA, the molecule. But like, like dust. They knew exactly the biggest part of these DNA molecules would go into the gravity of a sun, would never survive. Another part would go into the gravity of a planet, which is not reasonable for this form of life. Like in our solar system, Jupiter is too big, or Mercury is too hot, etc. A small part of it will land on planets which are similar than the one planet who started with that. And now evolution starts. So the information for evolution, for life, has come from outside. And the funny thing is, this idea of panspermia we find in the old holy writings, including in the Bible, where they say God, or the gods in plural, created humans after their own image. If we look at it this way, that means we are, in a way, the offsprings of extraterrestrials, which does not contradict evolution. It's just the beginning, and all the rest is evolution. It is evolution. And in the course of evolution, these extraterrestrials, they have, in fact, influenced always. Take it in an example of an apple tree. We have an apple tree, and we make, the, we, we make research. How is the evolution of this apple tree? So we found an apple tree, which maybe was hundreds of thousands of years ago, slowly started to be an apple. And then the humans came. And what are we doing? By grafting, we change the apple, the apple tree, the fruit. So by grafting it, we don't even have to know something about, about DNA, about molecules, about genetics. We simply changed it. And this does not contradict the evolution of the apple tree. It was simply an influence. And now in old holy writings, many of them, and I am familiar with them worldwide, we have this influence. The so-called gods always interfered made some changings in the course of evolution. Well, you know, and I think that that's a really interesting way to look at it. And one of the things that I don't think people understand, um, because what you're saying, you know, these things are possible, you know, I mean, it's kind of like Superman in a way where like, you know, maybe it wasn't a whole baby, but you're saying the DNA elements came here. But here's what's interesting. I remember being in, I was in, in high school and I had this high school teacher um, named Mr. Lane, and he presented, he was, he was devoutly religious, and I found it very odd. He presented this idea, and I've never seen it, you know, I, I've had to look this up. I remember I asked him several times. This really had an impression on me, but it's this, this, um, this experiment that a uh, professor, uh, uh, the scientist named Sidney Fox created, and, and basically what he did is he took all the, you know, he took like a primordial soup of what would be present on the earth, you know, way yeah. before life. You know, this is when earth is just formed. And, you know, he took all these elements, all the things that are necessary for life, but in their individual forms. And he heated them up and he created the condition where life kind of spontaneously generated out of these things. Now, it's not life as we know. It wasn't even bacteria. These were small circles and they created, you know, they were they sexually, they asexually reproduced. But he created this thing. I mean, you can look this up. This is this is incredible stuff. Uh, so this is a real experiment. It is not a leap to say that life can form in in the most extreme conditions. We you know we see it here on Earth in in the extreme volcanoes and the cold depths of the ocean. We've got bacteria that live there. Life, you know, as they said in Jurassic Park, life finds a way, and I think it's extremely robust. What's the point that I'm trying to make here? That I think, you know, we are going to find out that the that the universe is teeming with life, and I think because there is so much, it is not it is not that big of a leap to say that what you are talking about is not po- completely possible. That that life could have developed elsewhere, even the fundamental elements of life, even DNA, even small little organ, whatever it is, small little elements of that, 
it happens, you know, that those could come here and, and like you said, influence our life. I think that this is, this is a really possible thing. I mean, look at like the way bacteria and, and animals and like human beings spread across this earth. You know, we were in one small part and then we took over the entire earth. You know, that happens you know, with, with, with things on, we see that present on our earth. Why would that not be possible in the universe? It was possible, and it is possible. We are part, you know, there was the professor, Dr. John Mack in the United States. He was a Harvard professor. And some uh, 20 years ago, he published a book with the name, uh, title Abductions. I knew him quite well, and he said, this universe is full of life, full of life. We just look at us separated. You know, uh, on this planet Earth, we have two, two ways of looking to, uh, to us. The one way is the religious way, and the other way is the scientific way. The religious way says, us, well, God made everything, but as crown of creation, he created us. In the scientific way, we say, no, it's our evol uh, evolution, mutation, selection, but we are the top of evolution. Now, in both ways, look, if we look at it religiously or scientifically, in both ways, we are the greatest. Religiously, we are the top of, we are the crown of creation. And scientifically, we are the top of creation. We, are, we look at ourselves as the greatest in the universe. We, I think sometimes we have a psychological problem. We don't want extraterrestrials. If we accept them, we are not the greatest anymore. So we have to, be, <laughs> to learn to become more humble yeah. and to accept we are just one of the billions of life forms out there. Now, there might be complete different forms of life of us. I mean, evolution of other planets might be completely, we cannot imagine. Maybe some flying elephants exist or speaking bushes. What do we know? But there are also <laughs> life forms which are similar to us. This is the theory of panspermia because we are the offsprings. It all started. You know, and there is absolutely certain logic behind it. Imagine we would be ready, our, scientific, our technology would be ready to make space travel in bigger distances. So a group of scientists are sitting together and asking, where do we go? Do we go first in our solar system? We can go to the moon. We can go to the Mars. This is possible. We can survive. We will never go to Jupiter. Jupiter is a giant. It, it, its gravity would kill us. We would never go to Mercury. It's too hot, etc. So we humans, we look for a landing place which makes sense, sense for us. We want to survive there. We want to work there. Now, the same logic happens for others. There might be the flying elephants, but the flying elephants visit planets with flying elephants. And only the ones who are similar to us visit planets who are similar to us. Some two years ago, NASA has uh, on a press conference, they said, because of calculation made because of the Hubble telescope, etc., only in our Milky Way, we have to count with about 4.5 billions of Earth-like planets. So the Earth is not unique. So it might be that there are so many forms of life, some of them completely different to us, but others similar to us. Mm -hmm. The gods created humans according to their image. Well, you know, and I think, you know, part of that is what happens on Earth here is we have convergent evolution. You've got the same things that exist, you know, on two different animals that are, you know, a world, you know, half a world apart. I think, you know, a lot of things are similar. Dr. Denon, who I mentioned earlier, we've had conversations where, you know, he says life on other planets probably isn't that different because all the things you would need for life kind of form in only one particular way based on the physics of the universe. And he makes a pretty strong argument for that. Uh, I mean, I, I think this is really interesting. I got to tell you, the, the to this talking bushes idea that you have um, would send give a lot of credence to Little Shop of Horrors being, uh, you know, fact instead of fiction. <laughs> oh, yes. You know? Yes. We, we've kind of established that, you know, we have these, you know, th that all this is possible. So let's let's take a little leap here. OK, so let, let's let's. Oh, no. You know what I do want to mention? I do think that when you say that we are the top of the evolutionary scale, I do want to mention this. Because no, no, no. We are not the top. Well, we are the top of our human of our evolution on this planet. We are the top. But in, in, in the universe, we are definitely well, not the top. No, but I don't know where evolution goes. Maybe in, in, in a million of years, we lose our body and we uh, uh, make an evolution into spiritual beings. I have no idea. Everything is possible. I mean, for our planet, we are the top of evolution, well, but not compared to, to the Milky Way. Well, now, hold on there, EVD. I've got to take some issue with that because this is like one of the things with human beings that I always find very annoying. 
And that's how, what are we determining as success? You know, I mean, if you look at the cockroach, the cockroach is, I think it is evolutionarily superior to us in almost every way. So but, uh, I, what is the culture of the cockroach? What is the, the singing? What is the science? What is the technology? We don't know. I mean, they do communicate. I don't know if they sing or not. I, I don't. Yeah. I don't hang out with cockroaches. I would imagine they don't have a lot of science, so you may have them there. Their arts are probably limited as well. But but is that the mark of, of the the height of evolution? I don't know. Maybe philosophers have to answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. But from a strictly animal animal kingdom speaking, I've always thought the cockroaches, sharks, these are the things that are actually at the top of the evolutionary of the evolutionary chain. However, I think human beings obviously are at the top of the food chain. Uh, we definitely, you know, we're an invasive species everywhere that we go practically on the earth. Um, so I, I don't know. I take issue with that, but, but I do understand what you're saying. And it is people, once you've evolved to this kind of state, you know, the, the brain is really what's key to do all the things you just mentioned, science, you know, um, technology that allows them to go to other planets. So let's, exactly. just, so let's say for a second, you know, this has evolved in other planets. People have come here. This is the part that I find truly fascinating because, you know, when you look at like, as I mentioned before, I think that your book to me really spoke to what is the history of religions on this planet? Where do these ideas come from, especially poly, polytheistic ideas, this whole pantheon of gods, you know, you know, Greek religion, the Egyptians. Um, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff here because when you look at like the Greek gods, they were all very human-like. They just had extraordinary powers, and there, as you mentioned, there are lots of hybrids, people who you know mated with the gods, humans and gods, creating other beings. You know, this kind of speaks to a lot of what you're talking about. How does that fit into your idea? You know, in the beginning, our Stone Age people, there were seen from a technical point of view, primitives. They had no idea what the lightning is, when the light comes from heaven. They had no idea what, what the, the thunder comes from. They were afraid of, of, a, of a volcanic eruption. They were afraid of, of a tsunami. Of course, they were afraid of thunderstorm and all these things. So the first religions were definitely natural religions because our ancestors were afraid. They could not understand the sun. Why is the moon sometime on the sky and then it disappears? So right. they worship the <laughs> right. elements. They worship the stars, etc., which is normal. But then extraterrestrials come. And in some cases, you can prove it because the extraterrestrials, they took some of the humans into their spaceships. They learned their language. So the humans learned the language of the extraterrestrials. And the extraterrestrials teach them. For example, in the book of Enoch, which was written before the Great Flood. By the way, just to explain for those who don't know, Enoch in the Bible is the seventh patriarch counted from Adam, and he is the first human who disappeared with a flying chariot into the universe in the Bible. The same Enoch is author of a book, the Book of Enoch, which was found 160 years ago in an old library in Ethiopia. Now, Enoch was taken away. He learns the language of the extraterrestrials. And then his teacher says to Enoch, Human, look outside. Do you see this little light there? You humans call it moon. But the moon has no light by itself. The moon receives his light from the sun. And then he explains why the moon sometimes disappears and then is half moon, etc. Or he says to Enoch, Enoch, do you see this bright shining light? You humans call, call it sun. You see all the little lights out there? These are all suns like your sun. And he explains him the planetary system. Now, these are scientific informations. With that sort of information, it doesn't help me to count for the natural religions. You know, the earthquake, the, the volcanic eruption does not give scientific information. And in some of these cases, we definitely have this scientific information. So the explanation has to look for another way. And I suggest it was extraterrestrial. By the way, you're always talking about my book. In the meantime, I have published 41 books. Right, right. At least some 20 of them should be in the United States somewhere. Yeah, well, we're talking about pan, panspermia. panspermia. You know, we're talking about the, the book that kind of seeded all of this. You've written lots of, you know, lots of books, which, which really begs the question, um, you know, it, it, again, I don't want to go back to this obsession, but you've written 50 books. A lot of them are on this subject. How do you keep it fresh? What do you what do you put in these books? What is the passion to 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 drive well, this it, idea it, forward? It's a never ending story, 
because my books are known worldwide, I receive a lot of information, a lot of letters, a lot of help. And I have many, many speeches worldwide. So after every speech, every speech I have contact with some scientists, with wonderful people, which give me information which I didn't know before. So it's a never-ending story. I tell you the newest story, which is completely crazy. Okay. About uh, like a year ago, I received an email where somebody told me he has an extraterrestrial mummy and he would sell the mummy to me for $100,000. Now, a normal being, when he hears this, extraterrestrial mummy, he would just start laughing. This is all ridiculous. Forget it. There are no extraterrestrial mummies. But I'm not a normal being. I know that 20 years ago in Chile, there was a priest. His name was Padre Lepeche. He was for 40 years working as an archaeologist. Very respected man in Chile. In the Chilean city, uh, San Pedro de Atacama, there is a museum called Museo Padre Lepeche. Now, this Padre Lepeche, before he died, he gave an interview and he said he found in subterranean tombs extraterrestrial mummies. And he even says, if I would continue to tell you what I saw there, the people would be afraid, humans would be afraid. So I knew this story from this extraterrestrial mummy in my brain. And now somebody comes and <coughs> offer me an extraterrestrial mummy for $100,000. Of course, I asked for more information. <laughs> I received some pictures of a small being just about 30 centimeters long. Mm-hmm. And it looked to me all like fake. That's all rubbish. That's all garbage. So I continued to search for it. And finally, I found out there were, in fact, mummies found in Peru of little beings, not bigger than 30, 32 uh, centimeters long. And in the meantime, the American TV station Gaia has paid some of these movies, and they have made a DNA analysis and, and computer tomographies of some of these mummies. And it seems that these things are not from our planet. So we have the next question. What is the story behind it? It's definitely not falsification. Something is behind it. But what? I have no final answer. But don't, don't forget, it's, it's small bodies, 30 centimeters long. It's nothing. Yeah, well, we use inches here in the States, sir. So that's what? About, about a foot long, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Quick math. Yes, that, that's not very big at all. That's a very small mummy. You know, it is, it, that is astounding. You know, and part of, you know, what you've kind of like looked into is, is a lot of these kind of um, these basically ancient evidence of, of extraterrestrial influence. And some of the stuff is pretty amazing. And one thing, before we move into this, one thing I want to mention, which kind of gives us a cool segue, is that yeah, I think it was Carl Sagan who said, any you know significantly advanced technology will look to us like magic. Um, and I, and I think true. in your book you mentioned, it, with enough magic you look like a god, which would, which would say that you know, if advanced beings came here with a lot of technology that could not, that could not explain, I believe you used the uh, analogy of a helicopter um, in Chariots of the Gods. When, when, you, when something like that, when no one's seen a helicopter, no one even has a frame of reference, this is so technologically advanced, there is nothing even close to a reference point for a culture. This does look like gods, you know, these are some kind of gods. And if these beings came down in spaceships and were giving them, you know, kind of this advanced technology, I could totally understand how they could be seen as gods. Um, so one of the cool things I want to talk about is what were, you look at some of these kind of cool technologies or these ideas, these things that were specifically advanced for the cultures at that time, you know, specifically, uh, you know, the Baghdad battery or... Um, uh, what's the other? The, I always get this. I never can really pronounce this right. The, the machine, machine of Antikythera, that, for example. That's the one. Yeah. Or, or the periodized world map. Yeah, these are really cool things. Um, let's talk about those for 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 a second, and and how you think that those are related to to extraterrestrial contact. Let's talk about the Baghdad battery. Well, definitely, this is human made. The humans made it. You know, the Baghdad battery was found 150 years ago outside of Baghdad, originally in the Baghdad Museum by a German engineer. His name was Professor Kung. And he simply found out that uh, in this object, there were two different uh, sorts of metal. One was copper, the other, the other was uh, uh, iron. And if you put cut, copper and iron together and you, and you mix it with a, a, a liquid of acid, then you simply have an electric battery. So working with the galvanic principle. Now, this is human stuff. This is not extraterrestrial stuff, but my suggestion or speculation is maybe some of these ETs told to some of his, his priests, 
Listen, I show you a secret how you can impress the people so that they adore you, they obey you. So simply by this, you can make a little light. So the priest knew how to make it, and then he makes a light, and the people were influenced and impressed. So, But the, the, the knowing comes from outside. The doing was from the planet. It's the same thing with the Great Pyramid. You know, I just come back from Egypt, and every time the same question, we know humans made the Great Pyramid. I never suggested extraterrestrials made the Great Pyramid. We did the dirty, the dirty work, but the planning... More and more, we find more rooms and shafts and tunnels inside the Great Planning at the Great Pyramid. As more rooms and shafts you find, found, that means the planning by engineering it becomes more complicated, and you have to make the planning before you start the building with the stones, with the blocks, etc. Now, according to Egyptology, it was all done by Cheops. Cheops was a pharaoh about roughly two and a half thousand BC, so roughly four and a half thousand years ago. But Cheops' fathers, Northu, and especially his grandfather, they came simply out of Stone Age time. So the planning of the pyramid, seen from the point of an engineer, does not fit to the knowledge of Cheops. Now, we have old Arabian writers, with all of them in 2,000, 2,500 years ago, which said the, big, the, the Great Pyramid was planned by a, a, a pharaoh with the name of Saurit. And they say Saurit is the same which the Hebrew community calls Enoch. Now, Enoch, again, is the same who was instructed and learned the language by extraterrestrials. So he would have been able to make the planning. And why should he have done this? They knew, what I say now, I know from the old uh, Arabian writing, they knew that the terrible flood would come. Enoch told them a terrible flood will come and destroy everything. So you have to preserve all your writings, all our knowledge. You have to pre preserve it before the great flood. That's why we construct this building. And before Enoch left the planet, he gave all his books to his son Methuselah and said, keep them for the generations after the great flood. So I still suggest now we find more and more rooms in the Great Pyramid. Sooner or later, we will probably find books in there. Hmm. And they might tell us a complete different story than the story we know until today. Wow, that's that's amazing. You know, and and I think that you know, along with that, I, I do want to I do want to clarify something that I, that I meant is that you know the Baghdad battery, let's say, and in the Great Pyramid. Uh, you know, obviously, I'm I'm not suggesting these were extraterrestrially created, but you really have to look at where the technology exists in the time frame of technology. You know, if we have you know even let's take let's take a musket for example. You know, in our time, that's ancient technology. But if you were to find a musket, 2000 BC, so any kind of firing projectile weapon, you know, that's what makes it, you know, obviously then at that particular point, because it is out of the stream of technology that we know, that's what makes it really relevant and very interesting. And then the, the, it's a very simple jump to, well, where did the knowledge to create a musket 2000 years BC come from? Same thing with a battery. If this is existing before electricity, that's really interesting. This machine, the machine of, oh, I never pronounce it. Antikythera. Yeah. Like Antikythera this is, is a small island before Greece. And uh, in 1919, uh, 19, they found uh, some, some divers found uh, an object which is called the machine of Antikythera. Anyhow, the machine of Antikythera is constructed of hundreds of hundreds of cogwheels, very small and very big cogwheels. And they have differential gears in there. And they, these cogwheels show that the planets in our solar system, including Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. Now, the machine, again, the handiwork is done by humans. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. not an extraterrestrial work. Right. But some of the teachers had to tell it to some of the humans, saying, listen, uh, you are in a planetary system, and I show you how you could uh, preserve, uh, show this to your public by constructing that, that machine. It's not extra extraterrestrial technology. It's extraterrestrial knowledge. But the machine exists. Today it's uh, uh, shown to the public, 
in the Athens Museum. I was there just uh, four months ago. Oh, that's am- I mean, that is amazing. I mean, because this thing is, and you live in, in Switzerland, this thing is almost better than a Swiss watch. I mean, it is it's <laughs> extremely precise. I mean, it's very complicated. It's almost at the height of machine construction, especially for that time. And again, when you look at the technological timeline, this does not fit in that timeline in that location on Earth, if I understand it correctly. Correctly. Or another object is the so-called uh, Piri Reis map. You know, your American professor, Charles Hapgood, has published a book that some 20 years ago, the title is Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings. There is a map called the map of Piri Reis. Piri Reis was a Turkish admiral. The map was found in, in the Topkapi top Palace in Istanbul. Now, whatever the map is, down at, at, the, at, the, at the map, you see the coastline of the Antarctica. Definitely the coastline with all the little islands before the coastline. But Antarctica, which is covered by ice and snow since thousands and thousands of years. So who mapped the Antarctic with the islands and the correct coastline? We have no idea. But the fact is this map does exist and this Antarctic coastline does exist. You can control it in the scientific book maps of the ancient sea kings written by professor dr charles hapgood so we have the fact the map again was designed by one of the humans but the knowledge behind it was the knowledge of extraterrestrials at least not the knowledge which humans had some thousands and thousands of years ago when the antarctica was free of ice right right no, and, and, and to me like that's the really intriguing part of all this i don't know i don't know that it, I, I don't know what I think. I'll be honest with you. I don't know what I think. But these types of pieces of evidence, when they exist outside the technological timeline, are very intriguing touchstones when you start putting together you know, what happened in the past. Because you know, as you mentioned, a lot of these books, things were written down, but it doesn't exist anymore. We, we don't have immediate access to a lot of the history that happened. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff we just kind of, we, we look at, you know, hieroglyphics or we look at ancient writings, we look at petroglyphs, and we kind of, you know, make our own assumptions and we make our own leaps. The same thing we do with biology when we find certain species, we kind of fit it into the tree of life. And so, you know, it's the gaps that we make. What is the actual information that went in there? I don't know, but these items hold the answer, I think. Well, definitely. You know, most of the, if we still would have the millions and millions of books from, of the past, most of the big libraries were destroyed. Destroyed by water, by floods, by, by, by the humans, by, by fire, etc. There were millions and millions of books, not only 20 old books. If we would have only 10,000 of these old books, the situation would be clear because our ancestors, they have written about these gods. We still have books, for example, like Herodotus. Herodotus was a Greek historian. Some call it the father of history. Herodotus was about 450 BC in Egypt. He published two books about Egypt. In his second book about Egypt, in chapter 141, he says he was in Thebes. Thebes is today's Luxor on the Nile. And the priest showed him 241 statue, one statue next to the other, and the high priest gave to every statue an explanation. And at the end of the 241 statues, the high priest said to Herodotus, these 241 statues represent 11,340 years. At that time, the gods from the firmament were among the humans. Since that time, the gods have not returned. Now, Herodotus made this statement some two and a half thousand years ago. So we have to adapt the two and a half thousand years to the 11,340 years. Roughly 14,000 years ago, according to Herodotus, the gods from the firmament were on earth. Now, Herodotus made, made this statement. Now, you can believe it or not, but he proves it with the 241 statues. So what do we do with all these things? All we have in the Bible, we have a prophet with the name of Ezekiel. You find him at the end of the the Bible. Ezekiel describes that he sees a vehicle coming down from the sky. He describes not only what he sees, the legs, the wings, the metallic feet. He also describes the noise. He compares the noise with the thundering of a waterfall, with an immense, tremendous noise, etc. Now, theologians look at all this as a vision, a, a vision. Ezekiel had a vision. He saw the almighty God sitting on his throne, on his chariot, flying around. Now, as I said in the beginning, 
I'm a deep believer in God, but my God doesn't need a vehicle in which to move from one point to the other. God is all over. So what is Ezekiel telling? And he writes it in the first person, in the I form, not in the third person. So we have many of these references which were translated in the past by brilliant professors in their way, at their time, their spirit of time. Today, the spirit of time slowly changes, and we have reasons to look at all these things with new eyes. No, I, I mean, I, I totally agree. I think that that's a really interesting point, because when you start looking at the things that were written before, and we look at them with modern eyes, what did that mean? You know, it's, it's again saying that we don't have the frame of reference for a helicopter or whatever. Uh, exactly. Um, you know, what, what makes that interesting, and, and again, I, what I loved about, especially what I love about Chariots of the Gods, <laughs> and I think it's a great description of how religions were formed, because I think the UFO aspect of it, especially today, in 2018, by people who are listening, the UFO aspect is not as intriguing because I think if you're really listening, you understand that there's something going on um, on our planet, you know, especially uh, ever since Luis uh, Elizondo came out, um, he worked for the Pentagon, he's with the, you know, Tom DeLonge and the Academy to the Stars, you know, when you start looking at what our government knows about UFOs and, you know, people coming, you know, them visiting here, if you believe in that, it is not that big of a leap to say over the past 2,000 years or whatever, if they can do the things that they can do now, they had similar capabilities back then, I would imagine. I am, now I'm taking kind of a big leap here. I know that that may, be, no, of course. that may be a little too much of a leap, but it is really easy to say if, if, they, if, if we know that we're being visited now, it is not that big of a leap to say we weren't being visited back then. Um, you know, that could be the return you're talking about in some ways. Um, well, well you know. we, we have this eyewitness from the past. You know, in my eyes, these extraterrestrials, some thousands of years, they came here. Our forefathers were Stone Age people. They could not understand what was going on. They believed that these extraterrestrials were gods. Of course, we know there are no gods, but that's what they believed some thousands of years ago. Now, these extraterrestrials, they behave themselves like today's ethnologists would do. They learned a few languages, they studied a few groups of the humans, they influenced and con contacted some of the people, not the whole society, some of the people which today we call prophets, like Enoch, Ezekiel, etc. They influenced them. Finally, they disappeared with the promise in the far future they would return. And this promise of return was part of every culture of the past and is part of every living religion today. You know, some 450 years ago, roughly, when Francisco Pizarro, he was the Sp Spanish conqueror, when he came to Peru, the natives believed that he was the long-awaited God. They all fell down on, on her knees. They adored him. The same thing in Mexico. You know, uh, uh, Moctezuma, he was the king of the Aztec. He believed the, Sp the Spaniards were the long-awaited God. Even far away in the, in the Pacific Ocean, for example, the British explorer uh, friend uh, James Cook, he came to Hawaii. The natives believed that James Cook was the long-awaited God. So this awaiting, this expectation of somebody is not the Christian invention. It ex existed long before Christianity. And what do we have in today's religions? I'm educated as a Christian, as a Catholic. We believe that someday Jesus will return. But the Jewish community believe that someday their Messiah will return. The Muslim society believe that someday their Mahdi will return. So every religion has someone which they wait that he will return. Now, fact is, not every religion can be right. Some of them must be wrong. And I say all of them are wrong. Neither Jesus or Buddha or, or Messiah or Mahdi will return. Simply extraterrestrials. They promised it in the past. It was part of the cultural knowledge. It is part of our religion. And maybe today they are here. Maybe today they observe us. They learn again language. They study our weapons, our political, our religious systems. And they do not influence us, but they observe us at the moment. So this is a possible reality. All through, I myself never saw a UFO. Well, you know, and I think really the conclusion that I came to when, you know, hearing all this stuff and, and reading, reading your book and, and looking at all the stuff you've kind of done, the similarities amongst religions, it is stunning. I mean, it is spectacular. You've drawn a lot of incredible lines that really make you think about what was the origin of, you know, just religion in general. And I think it comes down to one thing, either 
like you are postulating that there is some piece there, you know, this paleo contact that that is in fact the genesis for all of these, especially poly, polytheistic religions. That is definitely one way to look at it. Another way, which which I think is also valid, is that there is something inherent in the human condition where they look to similar stories to explain their past, and that doesn't necessitate any kind of beings or anything like that coming and creating or, or assisting, you know, it's just this belief as human beings that there is a power greater than us that we can't see. Yeah, yeah, yes, and, but this you know would I mean? not explain the scientific information. You know, if we just believe there must be a power like this, which is hum- seen from a human point, absolutely understandable. That would not explain why, for example, in the case of Enoch, they say, human, look out there. You see a little light out there. You humans call it moon, but the moon has no light, etc. So that's the normal explanation, would not explain the scientific information which was given in the past in several books. And I'm not only knowing the book of Enoch, I know the old books of the Hindus, of the Tibetans, etc. It's all, there were teachers, they, they teach some of the humans. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting part. I mean, I would find it, the, the, the part about that that I find a little hard to believe is that, the, that if there was paleo contact, that they were able to get in touch with every culture across the world. Because no, there are they so did not. Many, no, but there no, are so no, many cultures not. who have very similar belief systems, right? Yes, but uh, no, they did not get in every contact. Look, take an example with Christianity. We know that we have a person, Jesus Christ, who died 2,000 years ago. We know the year, we know the location, Jerusalem. Now, that only happened once. And since the death of Jesus, religion has spread out all over the world. Fantastic churches and cathedrals were constructed in in South America, in Central America, all over the world. The artists, the painters, the architects made great things in in their churches, pictures. But none of the artists, none of the architects were an eyewitness at Jesus' time. They all have become workers because of the tradition. So the extraterrestrials some thousands of years ago, they did not have to visit every culture. It was maybe at one or two or three places. And then the, the information was spread out over the planet. If we have something like this, the, the tombstone of Palenque. Palenque is in Mexico. Palenque, there is a pyramid. And under the pyramid is, is a fantastic tombstone, two meter, uh, three meter 80 long, two meter 20 large. And on this tombstone, you have a man chiseled out. You have a man uh, sitting in a kind of, of, of machinery, bending forward almost like a rising motorcyclist. He uses his hand to manipulate control, etc. Now, that was not an eyewitness, the man who chiseled that. He was not an eyewitness. He just heard the story that long time ago, from heaven, there were beings. And now, like the Christian uh, uh, artist, he, he makes a chiseling. Yeah, and, and I've seen that. I'll put it up on the website. That is a fascinating um, picture. I mean, you know, and there's people who have debunked it, who have said, you know, it could be something else. Um, but but I think that it really, you know, whatever you, however you believe, whatever you believe that picture to be, it is a pretty compelling piece of evidence because I believe it's also chiseled like going straight up, right, instead of on its side, which is the way they were typically chiseled. Or am I making that up? You know, yeah, now, in the beginning, this, was, uh, this stone was found in 1952. And in the scientific community, which, my, which is Maya archaeology, since 1952, I read about uh, 14 different possible explanations <laughs> what it is. We know for sure it represents yeah. Pakal. Yeah. Pakal was the second last ruler of the city of Palenque. And now the newest explanation came from the American professors Stewart and Stewart. They, they, they are from the University of uh, Houston, I think, in Texas. And they are the, the most brilliant uh, ec- uh, uh, translators of Maya hieroglyphs. And, and in their book, which is out since six years, they say, yes, it represents Pakal, but Pakal is really flying out. He flies away from our solar system. The whole picture, the whole chiseling has to do with the universe and with the stars. So there is a new explanation. Mm. The, the past 14 explanations are gone. 
<laughs> well, it is. It's very interesting. I mean, I, I love that picture. Someone who um, who I know in, the, in who's in the scientific community, she mentioned that to me. Um, you know, it's funny when you hear some of these stories from people who you don't think would ever really seriously consider these kind of belief systems, and then you're like, oh my god, like you, you know, you know, it's like you're part of the the group who's even given thought to this. Um, you know, so- I I love I love discussions with skeptics because I learn from them. I learned the skeptics and say, okay, we have good reasons to look at this from another point of view. Wonderful. But after a two-hour discussion, the other side always said to me, we didn't know that. We didn't have this information. So we both learned from each other. And maybe the picture will change. No, it's very true. And, and you know, one thing, before, before we finish our time here, I meant to mention this at the top, but I, I, wanted, I, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about this before the end of the interview. Um, you know, you kind of put, you've got, everything you do kind of has this paleo contact kind of idea, but you really look at a lot of the mysteries of the world, and you put this all together into a theme park in 2003 called Mystery Park. Um, tell me about this. How did this come to be? I did a whole episode on theme parks and we talked about your theme park. I didn't thought, think I'd have the pleasure of interviewing you about it. The Mystery Park was the Mystery Park was a big, big park. It's still there, by the way, but in the meantime, it has changed the name. It's called now the Jungfrau, Jungfrau Park. To understand this, we live in Switzerland in the city of Interlaken and the biggest and highest mountain here is called Jungfrau. Jungfrau, which means in, 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 in English, uh, virgin, a virgin. So the park's name has changed into Jungfrau Park. You must imagine a big circle. From this circle, you go into seven different pavillons. In these seven, uh, seven pavillons, you see seven of the greatest mysteries of the world. And you, expl- uh, you have a, a headset on your, on your ear, and you explain, uh, you hear all the possible explanations. I, by the way, I made all the text for the mystery park, and I, I did very. I was very careful that the mystery park is not the park of having right to believe it. Every mystery ends with question marks. It's never a, a final answer. So you show, for example, Nazca. Nazca is this desert in Peru, 500 kilometers south of Lima. When you fly over this desert, you see first figures in the ground, then you see gigantic lines starting abruptly, ending abruptly, etc. So we have been flying over Nazca with helicopters. And in the Jungfrau Park, the people sit in an auditorium which has a, a glass uh, bottom. So you fly over Nazca, and on your headset, you hear all the possible scientific explanation what it could be. But it all ends with question mark. The mystery park, uh, the Jungfrau Park exists, but it's only open in summer, until October, so... Uh, for the next three weeks, and then it's closed for winter because in winter they always lost money. Mm. In summer they make money. No, that's and that's when you got to do it. Because you, know, you talk about the Nazca, the the, the Nazca lines. Um, you talk about cargo cults, Stonehenge, the Mayan calendar, the Great Pyramid, flying machines, um, and then Mars exploration and, and space flight. I got to tell you, while I was researching this, I had never heard of cargo cults before. That was something that was that was brand new to me. Well, you know. Uh, in the Second World War, America was fighting in the Pacific Ocean against Japan. And they, they were different little islands where the American fighters were fighting against Japan. One of the islands had the name of Tana. The American Air Force just improvised an, air, an, an airfield, improvising. At that time, there were all only propellant aircraft, not uh, jets. Now, 30 years after the Second World War, one of the veterans came back to this island. And he realized that the natives had constructed aircrafts of wood and straw. So they imitated the real aircraft, which they had seen 40 years ago, 30 years ago. They always expected that these flying birds would come back to them again and would bring them gifts. So they imitated something. In in science, we call this imitation culture cargo culture. When two societies came together, a technologically high society and a technologically lower society. The lower society does not understand the technology. And in some cases, they, they imitate it all through. They do not know what it is. So the natives of Tana, they imitated an aircraft out of wood of straw. They had no idea what for the propellant is. They had right. no idea that there is a motor inside. Right. They simply copied the outside and wished that these birds may come back to them again. 
This cargo cult means imitation of something which they could not understand. This is a worldwide phenomenon, not only on the island of Tana. Yeah, I, I, it blew my mind. It was one of the few things that I, I, I didn't know. You, you taught me something brand, brand, brand new. Didn't even know that existed. Okay, so before I let you go, I have to ask you about one other phenomenon, the Nazca Lines of Peru. Nazca is a desert in Peru, 500 kilometers south of Lima. When you fly over the desert, first you see nothing, simply a desert, sand, and little brown stones. Soon as you fly a little higher, you see figures in the ground, figures like monkeys, spiders, birds, etc. Then you fly higher again, then you see something which looks like airstrips. I never said it is an airstrip. I said it looks like airstrip. It starts abruptly, ends abruptly. The longest of these lines is 3.8 kilometers long. Now you fly over Natska. And what nerves me in all these scientific documentaries, you see only how they create the small figures like fishes, monkeys. It's easy to create them. You scratch away the surface and then a brighter shining ground appears. But they do not show you in the scientific documentary that some of these lines are made on cut-off mountains. Whole mountains, the top of mountains, have been cut up. And then you see these gigantic lines starting abruptly, ending up abruptly. So in my eyes, these were not airstrips. It was a cult of the natives. You know, from antique literature, I know that some thousands of years ago, there was a gigantic mother spaceship surrounding our planet. Now, the spaceship sent out automatic space probes. They wanted to find out where do we find energy on this planet? Where do we find maybe uranium, raw material, whatever? So they simply sent a space probe down to Earth. And Natska is still full of raw material. Now, imagine some of these space probes come down to the desert. By the, in the last few meters, maybe they use an air cushion principle so that the space probe come to a standstill. The air cushion would blow away stands and stone and stones on the side. Now, the space probes make some analysis and starts again to the mother spaceship. And some of the natives have watched this, and they could not understand something was coming down from the firmament. Now, the natives came to the desert, and what do they see? They see a line of blown away material of sand and stones, and they imagine this line was made by the gods. Now the natives start to make lines, gigantic lines, small lines, all for the gods. They think it is the wish of the gods that we make some of these lines. And then later they make figures in the mixture of the lines, figures of, of birds and apes and so on, simply to, to show the beings up there, we are here, we are prepared for you, we have offerings for you. So that was my idea of Natska, and not that it was an airport of extraterrestrials. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, not to say that it isn't a landing strip. That's a really interesting idea because when you look at when you look at you know flowers in the everyday world, people love flowers. It's the reproductive part of a plant, which is really bizarre to me. But when you when human beings look at a flower, we see it with you know with the visible light spectrum. When a bee, you know, flowers are essentially made for bees and pollinators who see in a different spectrum, ultraviolet spectrum of light. When they look at a flower, they see something very different. They see a landing strip to attract them to the center of the flower. You know. I think there might be something to that when you start looking at these things from above, from really high up. They're going to you look know, very in, different. In the surroundings of Natska, there are many hills and mountains. You find some sort of petroglyphs, paintings, and often you find some of these godlike beings with rays or halos around their head. I think that's a perfect place to end it. EVD, thank you for taking so much time out to talk to me about this extraordinarily captivating subject because you are an incredibly fascinating person, the perfect person to be giving all this knowledge to everyone else. So I want to thank you. And you are an incredibly interesting man. I hope we, we contact sooner or later again. Thank you for the questions. Bye-bye. Ciao. Well, thank you again, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And if you like this show, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And you can also check the show out on FascinatingNouns.com where you can find links to social media, follow all the behind the scenes on Instagram, 
Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Pinterest. We got all that. And you can even uh, learn all about the guests, find out links to their their pages, listen to the episodes. Full library is on fascinatingnouns.com. And if you like this show, you're going to love my latest podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. I take a panel of experts and look at fictional technology, science fiction, pop culture, and figure out how can we make this in real life. Uh, it's an incredible show. We talk about Frankenstein's monster, the T-1000, everlasting gobstoppers, portable holes, and even large battle mechs make all this, all your fiction a reality. Fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Easy website, fgbt.com. That's fgbt.com. One more time, fgbt.com. And if you like this shows, you're going to love everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out all about all my projects, and you can even Sign up for a newsletter at the bottom of the page to get all this stuff in your inbox once a week. No spammy stuff. I think you'll love it. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.